And we'll be in Genesis chapter 4 today. As I was driving to church today, it was in the, the song in my mind, back in the saddle again, was going through my brain. I'd just like to thank Caleb and Brian for the uh, three services that they, uh, they did. It was, uh, it was good. It was some time that, um, as I was thinking through this, I, had, I literally had preached almost a whole year up until that same time off, and I was thinking about how much you guys had to suffer through it, as well as me, of uh, all those sermons in a row without a break of hearing from someone else. But... Uh, it, is, it was a joy to uh, listen to them open up the Word of God. And so uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then uh, we will look at this passage. Dearly Father, thank you. Thank you that is by your grace we stand. Thank you that, as that song reminded us, when things are going on in this world, that our answer is, teach me your way. Teach me how to live. Teach me how to function in a way that is honor and glorifying to you. So, dearly Father, guide us now. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. When we think about the concept in front of us, and the concept in front of us I want you to think about literally is the phrase, what is happening to this world? What is going on? What are the issues that are happening? How are we to function in this world? And what is even going on that as we look around us that even brings answers to us? Because the world is looking for answers. It wasn't that long ago on October 9th, and we talked about a little in Sunday school, that we had literally terrorists come in and kill people. Just randomly picking this group over here, we're going to kill this group over here. Now, it wasn't random in that way. It was the Hamas attacking the nation of Israel. But it was literally, it was not a combatant they were looking for. It was just kids and women and children and everything else going on. We're just going to attack them and and kill them. And the world then responds. And as the world responds, they're trying to look for answers. And the answers that come is, well, we're going to call that wrong for right now. And there's a group that says, no, that's not wrong. And there's another group that says, yes, it is wrong. And all of a sudden, we're sitting here going, what is actually happening in this world? And what are the five problems that you would say are even happening in this world? If I were to ask you, what are five issues that are happening right now in this world that we need to address? Well, I did a little Google search real quick. And let me tell you what are the top five problems according to the people that come up with the top five problems in this world. And I'm just going to read through them without giving any commentary on them because so desperately I want to. But number one, the number one problem in the world is climate change. The number two problem in the world is wars. The number three problem in the world is unsafe drinking water. Number four is poverty and number five is human violence. And we look at those, if those are our top five things in this world... It's just interesting what is viewed as important and what is not. But the Bible clearly tells us the number one problem in this world. The Bible without a doubt tells us in Romans 3.23, literally the Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The number one problem in the world is sin. And I'm not going to go back and re-preach anything that Caleb preached, because I literally told him don't talk about these verses, and he did read them, but he didn't really dive into them. They're verse of 6 and 7 of chapter 4. Because I believe there's a very important thing we must learn as we go through this. Because it was interesting, as we were going back and forth on, do you want to, what do you want to preach and whatnot, I said, hey, say verses 6 and 7 for me, because I want to talk to the church about that. So let's read them. 
The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. To give ourselves a little bit of a background and a summary of what has been going on. Remember, Cain and Abel at a specific time came to give an offering before the Lord. Cain's offering is rejected, and as Caleb explained to it, because it was not an offering done in faith, and Abel's offering that was done was accepted. And now the response is very telling. Cain, instead of seeing that his offering is rejected, instead of seeing that he has been rejected by God himself, your offering is not acceptable, instead of responding like a follower of God would, saying, Lord, what must I do to have my offering be acceptable? What must be done? Cain responds in anger, and that anger that he responds in, and we see it here in the verse, is that his face has fallen. He is angry. Angry at God. And God tells him what must take place. And so we're going to look at this whole two verses here to make sure we understand what is going on. To make sure we grapple with what is the number one problem in our world is sin. Now again, I'm going to crouch this whole sermon is I am not talking to the person next to you. I'm talking to you. Alright, so when certain things arise or a comment is made or something is when you hear, when you feel the Holy Spirit tugging on you and working on you, this is not a thing of saying, boy, I need to make sure I take notes so I can go out and share this with my neighbor. Alright, this is the Holy Spirit working on you in these things. And it's working on me in these things. So the title of the sermon is Sin and Death in the World. So I want to look at the one phrase there in verse... um, 7, where it says, Sin's desire is for you. At the end of verse 7 there, it tells us that sin is crouching at the door. It is, its desire is for you. Point number one we're going to see is that sin desires to rule you. Notice how these, this word is used. Sin, in this, in this text here, it says sin is crouching. The idea of crouching is not because it's just tired of standing. All right, this idea of crouching is the idea of an animal, or if you want to almost call it a lion in the weeds, ready to attack. Its muscles are tense, the blood is flowing through it, his eyes are locked on the prey, ready to pounce, and just waiting for the opportunity. This with it goes, this, this sin is waiting for the moment to attack, the right moment to attack. Patiently waiting, ready to attack, watching for areas of weakness, ready to exploit. Peter talked about this, and we're going through 1 Peter, how Satan was like a roaring lion walking around seeing who may devour. The same concept here of the animal crouching. Notice where it's crouching, literally at the door. It is right there. It is not some far distance away. It is literally smack dab right in front of it. And notice this, though, the deceitfulness of sin is going to cause us to see the crouching lion and to go, oh, that looks like he's not doing anything. It looks like it's still for a moment. It looks like it's really not that dangerous because, look, it's not moving. That's exactly what the lion is doing sitting there for us to ignore it. And when we ignore it, what happens? The attack comes. It's interesting, the characteristics of sin is sin is a non-stopping, continual call away from the things of God. Sin is a non-stop, continual call. Go this way. Do this. This is where you need to be. 
And this call to rebel against the things of God, as Romans 3 reminds us that man is not a seeker of God. Man is a rebellious person against God. This call to rebel goes directly to the heart of natural man to draw him into one sin after another. That's why if you look at our world around us, it just seems that we go from one war to the next war, from one struggle to the next struggle, and all we're doing is just picking up where we left off. But not only that, when we think of the idea of sin, we're going to also notice that not as only sin crouching at the door, sin has a blinding and a numbing effect. Sin has a blinding and numbing effect. Because sin blinds the person to think that they can handle sinning and to think that they can handle it in such a way that the consequences will not affect them or the consequences will not affect others. They think that they are the one who can mess around with these things. They think they're the one who can deal with all of this stuff and never be impacted by it. That they are the, if you want to call it, the exception to the rule. That they can mess around with it, they can play with it, they can do this, but sin in its blinding effect says, oh, no, 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 that's not, that's not addictive. That's not what you need to be doing. You need to be doing this. Not only does sin blind us to what is going on around us, sin numbs a person. There's a numbing effect of sin. And it numbs because the first thrill or the temporary pleasure of doing the wrong thing wears off. So I'll give you an example of how this plays out. We'll just pick on the idea of being a thief or stealing. The first time you steal something, you grab one of those little candies. When I was growing up, they would have these big, I would call them, attractive nuisances to teach all of us how to steal. These big things in the grocery store was just a bunch of candy sitting there. And kids would come up and they'd run their hands through all of this candy and everything else. They were literally the root ball barrel, the root barrel, all the things like that. And they were just tempting for someone to grab. Well, the kid grabs it the first time, puts it in his pocket, and the adrenaline is running. All right, and that candy he thinks he has, and now guess what the next time he goes? Just grabbing one, is that enough? No, he needs to grab two, or he needs to move on to candy bars, or he needs to move on to this. Because the thrill, that thrill of it all is there, and, that, and the, the thrill of it causes us to want to go back. But what do we know? These are just fleeting pleasures, and they wear off. And a greater is needed to achieve the same fleeting pleasure of sin. It's the same thing, too, whether with drugs. Drugs, you get that first high, and you'll never get that first high ever again, and you just chase it with one drug after another. We do the same thing in our lives with the explicit or with or all of these things. And as before we know it, we are continually chasing things, thinking that we will get this first thrill or temporary pleasure, and all we find at the end is emptiness. Sin is an all-consuming desire that never satisfies. Sin is an all-consuming desire that never satisfies. It literally comes at us saying, this is what will satisfy you. It is a desire that says, I'm going to bring satisfaction. But it never satisfies. The reason why sin never satisfies is by very definition, sin cannot satisfy. The only satisfaction that is found is found in Christ and Christ alone. Only that is where satisfaction is found. In John Owen's book, the great book called The Mortification of Sin, he reminds us over and over and over again, one of the phrases, it's not even in pure Puritan English, it literally says, sin never takes a day off. Reminding you that the sin that so tempted you the yesterday, guess where that sin's going to be today? At the same spot, it never takes a day off. That's why it's, it's comical that we think, oh, everybody's on vacation, right? We, take, we all take off the 4th of July because sin never takes a day off. What do we still need? 
or EMS or fire and police because sin never takes a day off. People still sin on vacation. And it's interesting, though, as we look at this, as sin's desire is to rule you, is literally what God said to Cain. Its desire is to take you and to control you and to rule you. It's interesting, the more men get together, the more men gather together in circles, and the more we gather, the more we interact with one another, what do we find? Man just gets more sinful. It was interesting and tongue-in-cheek when Al Gore invented the Internet, after that was invented, from there, before you know it, we had all of these people gathering together on the Internet together, and what has the Internet become? A beautiful spot to share how to fix your car and everything else? No, the more man gathers on the Internet, what happens? The more depraved we get. The more we gather together to do more wrong and evil. Sadly, if to take a good look at our world around us, the only thing stopping sin is our lack of imagination or the ability of a person to carry it out. Not only does sin desire to rule you, but the Bible says that man, by his very nature, desires it. Let's look at Mark chapter 7. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus speaking here, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Of all these evil things come from within, they defile a man. Just in case you're wondering, where does sin come from? Within. I came across a quote the other day by Ray Comfort where he says, Sadly, we have hardened a nation by preaching the cure and not the disease. But I would say one step further. Not only have we not preached the disease, we have ignored the disease. We have said, sadly, and from sermon after sermon that have been preached from pulpits across our nation, we have sermons that just say, what, what is really needed for you is your best life, or what is really needed for you is you need to stop some of these just little tiny things you're doing as if man is naturally good. No, the Bible tells us man is naturally evil, and the disease is he is an ungodly man in need of a Savior. But sadly, when we ignore that and we only preach the cure and we just say the answer to just everything is Jesus without saying what's the problem, what's the question even, we have ignored what's in front of us. It's interesting, though, as we're about to talk about the fruit of sin being death and as I'm about ready to, by God's grace, try to walk us through the challenges we face this. Um, when I was in seminary, they said, before you ever build anything, before you put any additions on anything, you need to preach at least four to five sermons on holiness and sin. You'll have plenty of room by the time you're done. You won't have to build anything. All right? Because why is that? By nature, what do we want to do when we talk about the idea of sin? We want to get away from it. Or we want to point to other people. We want to say all the other problems are here, but our, our main issue is our own sinful state. Because we like to say it's everybody else's fault. Not here. Because notice what sin does. And we see this in Cain and Abel's story. Sin, when left unchecked, produces death. I want to make sure we see this, but let's go to even a clearer passage in James 1.14. Turn with me to James 
It's right after Hebrews, then James. James 1, 14. Speaking about when people are tempted. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So let's just go through James' argument there. You have an ungodly desire, because where are these desires coming from? You, your own desires. These are ungodly desires, because out of the heart of a man comes ungodly desires. Or we just read that in Mark. So we have ungodly desires, which gives us sin, and that sin brings forth, when it is fully blossomed, brings about death. It's interesting, as we even look at sin's impact on the culture, and as a culture starts to reject God, it literally can be seen in the culture. These ungodly desires which bring about sin, which lead to death. And I was just, as I was mulling this over, just starting to think in my own lifetime, how I have seen the, the country that I call home as America continually to fall through these, and you can literally watch sin play out. And so as, when I was a kid, some of the cutting-edge things that would try to, just, to try to push the envelope was all about modesty. And it was like we have a... We, all of a sudden, when, in the 90s and the 80s, they were trying to say, do we use sex to sell things or not? And there were edgy things all over the place. We have gotten to the point now where literally all of these things has come mainstream. That there isn't anything edgy anymore to talk about because literally it's all been talked about. So we can't even use that to sell anything because it had been so overwhelming us as we look around us. The culture is so indoctrinated and just breathing sexuality that we don't even have that eye-opening, whoa, did you hear what this company did? Because guess what? It has become mainstream. Man's reaction, man's rebellion against God is seen in their understanding of modesty. Where now... The reaction to it all is everything goes. And how does that happen? Because morality is continually shifting and being defined and redefined over and over and over again. We do not know what is right. We do not know what is wrong. And when you do not even have what is right or what is wrong, you can't even be edgy because you're not even in the edge of wrong anymore because there is no wrong. So how do you be edgy anymore? Well, because you can't. And so we live in confusion. And not only have we seen that with modesty, not only seen that with morality, we start seeing with human life being marginalized. Where we start having the society determine what lives are worthy, and we say everyone is equal, there's just more, some people that are more equal than others, and we start marginalizing humanity, we start marginalizing what actually took place because we don't like to hear about it, and we argue over who has the right to do it and who doesn't. I mean, just watch what's happening in our world right now. All of this leads then, though, to this. The pointlessness of life and the meaninglessness of life. If there is no ultimate point, because there is no ultimate morality, and there is no ultimate God, and a sin starts to blind us to all of this, and if there is no ultimate point in life, then there's no ultimate meaning in life. That would mean all life is, by definition, then meaningless. And what do we do with meaningless life? It's gone. Which leads us to death and destruction. This is what we even see in Cain's story as well, do we not? He gets angry that God does not accept his sacrifice, and that anger leads him, and that hatred that starts to build up in there towards God leads him to get so angry and so hate, hateful towards, because he doesn't know what to do with it. He knows if he goes after God, God will put him in his place. And so what does he do? 
He doesn't have the right relations with God and man, so what is he going to do? He takes it out man to man. And we see him look at his brother in anger and violence, and he takes that rock and kills his brother, brings it to death. An ungodly desire which brings forth the sin, which is anger, and ends in death. That is why sin's fruit is death. That's why we see it literally played out here in front of all of us. Now, when we talk about sin, there's a little bit of struggle that we go on was how does sin impact the Christian walk? What is the Christian walk's relationship with sin? Because it's easy for us to look down our, if we want to call it our purified, sanctified noses at everyone else and go, oh, you're a bunch of sinners, you people out there, but not us here in the church. So I want to take a quick moment and just talk about the Christian walk. So, when you are saved by God's grace, you are sanctified, you are set apart, you are justified by His grace. Your acts of obedience and everything are a result of what God has done. You are, we do not live in a meritorial relationship with God, that we have to do something in order to earn His favor. But sadly, most of us stop there, and we just then go off on this tangent of Christian freedom. Well, we're in free in Christ to do anything we want. But we miss the whole call of Jesus when he looked at his disciples and said, if anyone must come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And sadly, we have bought the lie that the Christian walk is one of getting as close as we can to sin without sinning. I would argue the Christian life is one of restraint, not indulgence. Just because it is not sin does not mean we embrace it. But sadly, most of us live in a world where we're going, well, it's not that bad. Well, the Bible doesn't directly say against it. And we don't even take a moment to think about our own testimony. We don't take a moment to realize that we have been called to, be, to act with restraint. And just because you can doesn't mean you ought. Because it's interesting, because whatever you do in, whatever you do in, in, in small little ways, those who, be, who are around you and those who watch you will indulge. I'll give you an example for that. And this is something that I'm not just saying this as a, as a leader of the church, as a shepherd of this church. And I was a kid that grew up in a church. Whatever the pastors do, slightly, guess what the flock thinks they can do? Whatever they want to do. And so there are certain things that I do that I don't do because I know that if I were to do them, there were people that say, well, Pastor Tim does X, Y, and Z. That means it's okay for us to do X, Y, and Z. All right, like I'll give you an example. I would absolutely love to not be here Sunday of opening day. All right? The Saturday and Sunday, all right? I would absolutely love to be out in a tree stand. All right? Now, but if I took off every Sunday of that time, I could. I have the vacation day to do it. All right? What do you think I'm setting as a standard? I'll just throw that out there. All right? Now, it's not be, but you're going to go, well, Pastor Tim takes off on opening weekend of gun season, guess what that means I get to do? Not even a question about it. I mean, there's not even like, should we do it, should we not do it, right? Well, Pastor Tim does it, so we're going to do it, all right? And now I'm not doing it because I want to make you feel all better than me or anything else. I'll be honest. I sit here in my own mind wondering, I wonder what just walked by while I'm preaching a sermon, all right? I still struggle with that, all right? My body may be here, my mind may be somewhere else, but I understand that I, there's, a, there's a pattern and a setting of this. Now, saying that all aside, this week I was thinking in my office about phrases 
As we live in a sinful world, phrases that I have never heard once in all my years of counseling when it came to sin. All right, so I was, these are things that like never once did I have anyone sit there. Now, I've been, by God's grace, able to interact with kids for the, and parents and adults for the last 13, probably even upwards of 15 years of my life. Here are things I've never heard. One, I've never had a couple sit in my office and say, we should have watched more TV as a couple and spent less time talking. Never once have I had a couple say that. Never once have I had someone come in and say, I wish I spent more time on social media. Never once have I had that. Never once have I had a parent say, if only we would have given cell phones to our kids at an earlier age. Never once did I have that said. Here's another one. Never once did I have a couple sit there with tears streaming down their eyes saying, Tim, sobriety ruined our marriage. And I'll let all of that just lay. Because as, a, as God's Word, as it's played out, what we have in front of us is opportunities to live a life that is pursuing after God in light of eternity. But most of us only live in light of now. And we live in light of now instead of in light of eternity. And so these battles are so hard for us when we see only what's in front of us instead of seeing the bigger picture. But I want to also notice what this text also tells us. We see here when Cain murders his brother, what does God do? Let's go over to verse 9. Verse 8, Cain rises up and kills his brother. We don't know if it was a stone or not. That was my editing in there. He just rose up in the field and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. It's interesting here the phrase when God looks at Cain and says, What have you done? You. Underline that in your Bible. What have you done? He's looking at Cain. What have you done? He didn't say, Cain, no, listen, I know there's a lot going on. He says, What have you done? And what is Cain's response? Even before that, when God says, where's your brother? He goes, like, I'm responsible for him. Point number three, when it comes to dealing with sin, is the personal responsibility for sin. Sadly, we live in a day and age where if Cain were to do this act today, here's what would happen. Cain would be said, by the psychologists of our world, he would have said, Cain, we understand you were raised in a very stressful, traumatic family. There were flaming swords and angels not letting you into the garden. Even though you may have wanted to go to the garden, there were these mean angels that kept you out. Your parents had incredibly high expectations for you. You were the one that was supposed to crush the serpent. And not only that, when you worked really, really hard in the field and your hands hurt and your back hurt and you were working really, really hard with your weeds, you come and you have an offering that God not only says no, He rejects it completely. You probably felt really rejected at that time. And notice this, even that place of worship that you were going to is not safe for you anymore because you'll feel neglected every time you go to that place of worship. And I'm sure you walked by that place of worship and felt neglected and then saw Abel on the way there. And what you really need from us is not more judgment, but a retreat away for self-care. This is the lie that our society is giving us right in our face. It's not your fault. It's everybody else's. The reason why you're sinning and you just give you the list. 
What does the Word of God tell us, though? The biblical worldview says this, Cain, you're responsible for your actions. Your actions are sinful, you are guilty, and here are the consequences. But what is Cain, though, sadly doing? He's following after his father, Adam. When Adam was confronted with his sin, what did Adam do? The woman. And then the woman follows her husband and says, the serpent. And this is going to be the natural reaction of man. Because modern man says that in the story of Cain and Abel, the real victim is Cain, not Abel. Because Cain was rejected by God. And he's the real victim. And we should feel sorry for Cain. Because not only that, Cain is marked and Cain is cursed and all these other things that are going on. We should really feel bad for Cain, not Abel. But we should not buy the lie of sin. This sin that says you are justified in your sinning because the real problem is everyone and everything but you. And so when we look at our passage here and we see in front of Cain this phrase, the sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. It wants you. It wants to control you. It wants to take your mind, your heart, and lead you away from God. But you must rule over it. This, is, this call that you must roll over it is not one to pious living and stri- get your bootstraps up and go. That call that you must rule over it, when fully understood, is the cry of the gospel where the sinner looks and says, I can't. Sin is too deceiving. I cannot rule over it. I need what? Christ to come into my life and give me a new heart and new eyes to see. Him is more beautiful because the desire for sin, we will find, is one that binds And what does Christ do? Comes in and sets the captive free. That is why the only way to rule over sin is only through the Spirit's power. Only through the Spirit's help. Only through the call of the Gospel that goes out and says, that is why you need a Savior, because sin will continue to rule over you unless... So what Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must have the heart of stone taken out and the heart of flesh placed in. But what we're going to see here is the incredible deceitfulness, the incredible aspects of sin that are so easily entangling in our lives. I want to take a moment here and ask ourselves the question, what did we learn today? There's three things in your notes, though, that I want to, I want to spend, make sure we spend time on. And you'll see that there at the end. We're going to see there that one of the ways this believer fights sin, one of the ways that God has given us His Word, to fight sin is as we memorize the Word of God. Psalm 119.11 literally tells us... It just went through my mind. I can turn there. Anybody want to give me a little heads up? It's uh, something of, that you will not sin. Alright, let's turn there. Psalm 119.11. I'm going to get it by the time we get there. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I will not sin against God. Thank you. Alright, see I have that hidden in my heart. Yeah. All right, as we go through it, the word of the, by, the word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. The hiding of the word of God in our hearts is literally what God uses that we will not sin. Literally what that is saying there is as the temptation comes, the promises of the word of God are to do battle with that. Because sin is coming with its own promises and the word of God is going to say, no, our promises are better and not just fleeting promises, they are everlasting promises to do battle on those things. Not only are we to memorize the Word of God, we're to meditate on it. Romans 
12, 1 and 2, by the continual renewing of our mind daily, we do this. In Ephesians 6, 11 through 13, talking about putting on the full armor of God. This idea that it's an everyday thing. And as you put on the armor of God, as you look at these things, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, all of these, as you place them on daily, you are to be reminded of the need for them. This is why the Bible says you put them on daily. Back to John Owen's argument, sin never takes a day off. And if sin is never taking a day off, do we ever get to take a day off when it comes to following God? No. I'll help you out. No, the answer is no. Because sin is always attacking. You have to think of you, sin is always growing. It's like a vine that never stops growing. And it slowly just has its talents, and it'll take you down if you do not do war with it. And this is how we do war with it. Memorizing the Word of God, meditating on Scripture, and then I'm going to give you the one that most of us do not like because we are blinded and we are numb by this. We need to cut off access to the areas of struggle. If you are struggling with something that you can cut off access to, you cut off access to it. Well, let's just help you out in that way. Right? If, I'll help you out. If I'm addicted to gambling, should I move by a casino? No. All right, if I'm addicted to online gambling, should I do what? Get rid of your computer. All right, maybe get rid of your phone. All right, for some of you men, maybe the flip phone is the best thing ever because it just draws you away into temptation. But what we do is we are so blinded by this, we think, oh, it's not that bad. Or it's not this much of a struggle. When you view eternity in view, you will do, I will do whatever it takes. Literally, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee youthful lust. Flee these things. The idea of that is you get on your horse and you are out of town. It is not just take slow steps away, looking back like Lot's wife. Oh, Sodom and Gomorrah were all that great. No, it is literally like do whatever it takes to stop the flow of this into your life because eternity is at stake. And these are the battles we all fight because what does sin want to tell you? You got this. It's really not that big of a deal. You can stop at any time. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit toying with this. Just a little bit toying with that. 2 Timothy 2.22 goes on to say, but pursue righteousness. This is an act of the will every day, waking up saying, am I going to go after the things of this world? Am I going to go after the things of God? How do I pursue it? But most of us, sadly, wake up each day, and I do the same thing too. It's a struggle every day to wake up and say, am I actually going to feast upon the Word of God to renew my mind, to understand what's in front of me, and what are the challenges that are going to come? Because each one of us, God, when God knows and we know our own sin struggles. And my question is, are you doing war with sin? Because sin is always doing war with you. So in closing here, as your shepherd, my heart aches to see you walk in obedience with God. Because here's one of the things I find. As I study the Word, I see over and over and over again the real joy, the real satisfaction, the real peace that is found only in Christ. Do we take Him as His Word? But yet what I also see is day in and day out, I see calls and I hear the calls of addicting, fleeting pleasures of this world that we are walking in all day long. I hear them. I see them. I see the impact it has on you as a flock. That is why we must gather, to, gather together. That is why we must be people of the Word. That is why we must encourage each other. 
all the more as we see the day approaching. So in my, as we turn the corner as my family here to be in my fourth year of preaching here, there was a couple of things that did not surprise me when I came here. And I'll give you the number one thing that did not surprise me, that you're all a bunch of sinners. All right? I was told that when I moved here, that there'd be sinners here. And guess what you also found about me? That I'm a sinner too. But isn't it interesting that none of us struggle with sin? If we were to ask you, how many of you struggle with sin? Oh, not me. Not as bad as what? That guy over there, right? That is why, though, we need, you need to have godly friends in your life. One of the things my mentors told me, you need to surround yourself with men that are not impressed with you. I would ask you, who is not impressed with you? That is enough to say, hey, you knucklehead, what you're doing is wrong. All right? I don't care how many ways you want to justify it. I don't care how many ways you want to do this. What you're doing there is wrong. It is not God-honoring or setting you up for failure. Flee it. Get away from it. Why are you messing with that? And so my question that I ask each one of you to be praying is, who in your sphere of influence is the Lord laying on your heart to encourage in the faith each day? Who is God laying on your heart right now in your sphere of influence you could be speaking to? If you do not have one, I encourage you to pray that God would bring someone along in your own life that you could encourage to do what is right. Because, as God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. And what was Cain's response when that sin was crouching at your door and that call to rule over it? Cain's response should have been, help, Lord, I can't do this, help. I see the deceitfulness of it, it's right in front of me. But what did Cain do? He allowed the anger, that ungodly desire to fester. He allowed that anger to come and it literally played out in death and destruction. We all are at that stage in our own lives that sin will literally destroy you and it does not care who you are. It will bring you down and what will sin do? Move right on to the next thing. Unless... We gather together, memorizing the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, and doing battle with it by pursuing after the things of Him. Then and only then will we be a healthy church. Will we be a healthy people. Dear Holy Father, help us. Thank you that you are God. Thank you that you are God and God alone, that you've given us your Word, that you've given us the truth. Help us to be people that make war with sin, that understand it's by your Spirit's strength and by your help that we stand. May the fruits of the Spirit be the things that grow in us daily. Thank you for your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen.